Good morning, Orchard Church. Hey, take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of... You got it. Book of Esther. If you're using one of the Bibles that you may have picked up when you came in this morning, you can find uh, Esther chapter 7 on page 206. Page 206. As we continue this uh, study through this uh, wonderful book of the Bible, and we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through, so we'll kind of catch you up a little bit. We've kind of, the theme of this series is called All In, and we've kind of had some fun with, you know, the poker theme and cards, you know, as we've got Queen Esther, and we've got a king, and we've got a joker and Haman, and, and different characters like that. Now, i got to help you guys with a title, some of you today. The title of today's message is The Showdown. How many of you all know what I mean when we're talking about cards and we say The Showdown? Okay, three of you, great. That's why I'm going to explain this. How many of you guys have ever seen any of the World Series of Poker, like on ESPN, on TV? You've ever watched any of that kind of stuff? And you're like, I can't believe that they're gambling that much money. And it's kind of interesting to watch. And in that game, when, when they're playing it, they're, each person's going to get two cards like this. And nobody else knows what these two cards are except the, the player. And they kind of peek at their cards and they look at them. And then there's five cards that are laid out on the table, you know, and there's some betting that goes on and, and all of that in between. And then at the end, you know, people will drop out as they go along. And then at the very end, whoever's left, and usually it's just, you know, maybe a couple of people, maybe three people would be left. Then they have what's called... The showdown. Everybody say the showdown. The showdown. And then the reason it's called the showdown is because now everybody gets to show their two cards that nobody else has seen but them. And they're trying to get, you know, the best hand out of what's in their hand and what's on the table. You know, the community cards that are out there. And so everybody shows their cards. And so they flip them over. I like having these cards. Two aces. That's really good. If you have that, it's really good. Um, we actually uh, like to play this game with our neighbors. We don't ever play for money. We just play for a lot of fun. And, and we play all all the time and I'm going to humbly admit this morning my wife kicks our tail almost every time yeah Shelly meek mild Shelly is a really good poker player so if she asks you to play be careful she's really good at it but the showdown is where everybody reveals their cards for, for what they have in their hand and then you know the winner is is determined well that's what we're going to see today in our story in the book of Esther we're going to see the showdown we're going to see players in this story reveal who they really are we're going to find out today that Esther's going to reveal finally to the king something that he has not known to this point that she's a Jew um, we're, she's going to reveal Haman as the villain in the story and that he's behind this whole evil plan to have the Jews annihilated. Uh, the king, it's going to be revealed to him today in this story, in the showdown, that he's been fooled, he's been duped by Haman, he's been deceived by him. And so the showdown is going to happen this week as all the cards are laid on the table and, and things are really revealed and, and you're going to see what happens because of that. Now as we ended last week, you remember, kind of one of the things that's been going on in this story is you've got this guy Haman who's the villain who is kind of like the prime minister to King Ahasuerus and he has come up with this idea he wrote into law he talked the king into agreeing to it to have all the Jews annihilated in one year because he couldn't stand this one guy and what was the guy's name? Mordecai, Mordecai, the cousin of Esther. And he's like, I can't stand him. He won't bow down to him. And so we ended last week seeing that, um, you know, Haman had a plan to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. But in the meantime, God got involved behind the scenes, began to work. And it was revealed that Mordecai, you know, six years ago had saved the king's life and he had never been rewarded for it. So Haman's coming in to ask permission of the king to, to hang Mordecai. And instead, Haman has to 
parade Mordecai like a king through the streets and honor him. And it was hilarious what happened in that scene. And then the very next thing that happened was Haman and the king were invited to Esther's banquet. And remember, this is the banquet she, that she invited them to where she's going to reveal um, her request. She's got a very special request uh, to the king. So that kind of brings us up to where we're at. Now, things went really bad for Haman last week, and it was hilarious. And they go even worse for Haman today as God has turned this whole story around. It reminds us of what Proverbs 16.5 says. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. And we have certainly seen throughout this story that Haman is a very proud, arrogant man. Be sure of this, the scriptures say. They will not go what? unpunished and Haman is about to get the punishment he is due today if you're taking notes let's we're gonna look at three things today number one of your notes we're gonna begin with the Queen's request at this banquet Esther chapter 7 verse 1 as we pick up our story and let me just say if you're a guest today or maybe you've missed a few weeks we put all of these messages of we video them, we put them online at our website orchardchurchonline.com so if you would say hey I'd like to catch up some of those others and what's going on in the story you can go on there and you can actually view those and watch those. But Esther chapter 7 verse 1, we see Esther's request. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day of the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? This is the third time he's asked him, or asked her. What is your petition? What do you want? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition. And my people at my request, for we have been sold, my people and I to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So finally, after three times of the king asking, Esther at this banquet finally reveals her request, what she is asking of the king. Now in verse 2, notice the king's like, you know, tell me what you want, Esther. I mean, this is the third time. Come on, woman, spit it out. And he's like, what, what's going on? And let me just say to you ladies, you know, you get frustrated sometimes with us as men because we don't know what you want. We don't. Please tell us, you know, when we ask. And even when you tell us, we forget. Conveniently sometimes, I must admit. But he, and so the king's kind of frustrated with his wife. He's like, Esther, I've asked you three times what your request is. We went to one banquet, you wouldn't tell me. And now, you know, first you came to me when I was on my throne, you wouldn't tell me. Then you asked me to one banquet, then you planned another banquet. It's like, spit it out. And so finally, she's, she's going to tell the king what she wants. And the second half of verse 2, notice the king trying to encourage her to ask her request. He says, listen, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Now, don't take that literally. That's a hyperbole. And basically what he is saying is, I'm feeling very generous. I care about you. I love you. I want to I meet your request. It's, he's kind of like, you know, I'll let you hold the remote tonight. You know, that's what I'm going to let you know. He's just kind of being generous. I, it's kind of like us saying to somebody, I'll give you the moon. You know, you're not really going to give him the moon. That was a, a saying in the kingdom and during those times. And so he's, he's being very generous. He's wanting to, to meet the request of Queen Esther. Now in verse 3, she finally gives her request. And what does she say? Will you help save my life? I mean, she's the queen. She's the king's wife. And she goes, she lets him know somebody wants to kill her. Now that would have certainly gotten the king's attention. What? Somebody wants to kill my wife that I love and I care about? Somebody wants to kill the queen? I mean, this is, this is a capital crime? 
And not only that, she says, not only is somebody trying to kill me, but they're trying to kill all of my people. Now again, throughout this story in the first six chapters, servants and some people have found out that Esther is a Jew. But to the best that we can see, the king does not yet know that Esther is actually a Jew. When she was chosen, she was chosen out of the Persian Empire. He thought she was probably just Persian like anybody else. But now... She is revealing who she really is. And she says, there's a death threat on my life and the life of my people. You know, I've, I've read different commentators about this. But I think as we see in the story, I mean, the kings back then were not known to be patient people. I mean, the first time she came in, you remember back in that chapter, she could have been killed immediately because she came in unsolicited to the king. But he accepted her. I think we're beginning to see in this story... That because of the godly woman that Esther was and, and, and because of how she treated the king, the king loved her. I really believe he loved her. I really believe he cared about her. I really believe that, that um, he wanted to meet her needs. And we kind of see that here in this story. So she would have certainly had the king's attention when she says, somebody's trying to kill me and my people. Now in verse 4, the king is beginning to realize that the decree that he agreed to sign or to allow Haman to put in practice, that he had given permission for his own wife's murder. He's beginning to realize, now wait a minute, that means if you're a Jew and it's those people, those are the people that we agreed to annihilate in a year, I mean he has really put himself in a tough spot. But Esther here now in this story has bravely interceded for her people and for herself and, and she has she's went all in with her faith and just did what she believed God wanted her to do to save God's people. And now the question is, how's the king going to respond to this? You know, it reminds us of the verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, one of my favorite verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall what? Direct your path. That's what she put her trust in. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to do what the Lord's asked me to do. And I'm going to leave, you know, the, the results to God. And so she's laid it out there. I, I, basically, I'm a Jew and my people are going to be killed. There's a death threat on my life. And she's once again gone all in with her faith. She has played her cards. She has finally revealed. I mean, he could have been so upset and mad to find out he married a Jew instead of a Persian. I mean, she has, she has put all her faith on the line. She has laid her cards out as Esther gives her request. Number two in your outline, we see then, how is the king going to respond to this request? Is he going to be mad at Esther? Is he going to be mad at somebody else? What, what's, is he going to banish her as queen now that she's a Jew, just like he did Vashti when we opened this story in chapter 1? Notice the king's response in verse 5 of chapter 7. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? To have you and these people killed? He's not quite putting two and two together yet completely. And Esther said, I love this, The adversary and enemy is this wicked who? Haman. Haman. Guess who is the only other person who was invited and is sitting at the banquet table? Haman. And she points him right out. She forces him. It's a showdown. She's played her cards. Now she forces him to play his and show who he really is. This is the guy behind this evil uh, decree. She says, it's this, it's this adversary, this enemy, this wicked Haman. And let me just point out right here for just a second. These are some of the same words she used to describe uh, Satan and the devil in the scriptures. He's an adversary. He's an enemy. He's wicked. And that was the power of working behind Haman. 
to try to kill God's people. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen, as, as he's pointed out, as this enemy and adversary. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine. He is ticked. And he went into the palace garden, you know, just kind of get away for a moment. But Haman stood before the Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. So we've seen the queen's request. Now we see the king's response as Esther forces Haman to, to reveal who he is, this wicked Haman. And so let's watch this scene from the movie One Night with the King, maybe how this might have went down. Watch this. I still find favor in your sight. Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. You demand of me your life and that of your people? My dear girl, I know not of your people. You have yet to tell me who they are. Had we been merely sold as slaves, I would have held my tongue. Haman wanted our blood, my blood, the blood of Jacob, your Jacob. Your Jacob was given a new name, Israel. As do was I. You, Esther, did you? That is the second time in this story where Haman probably pooped his pants. Just like last week when he found out Mordecai was the one he had to honor. I thought they did a good job in that movie. You know, he's sitting there like, you know, it's another want-to-get-away moment. It's like, oh my goodness, she has just tipped my hand. She has revealed my cards. He knows now that I am the one that came up with this decree against the Jews. And, then, and we don't know for sure, but it kind of lets us, lends us to believe that Haman didn't know that the queen was a Jew either. He would, remember, he wasn't mad at Esther in the story. He was mad at Mordecai the Jew. And now he finds out, oops, the queen's a Jew too. So that means she's going to be killed. I mean, he is in a, in a big mess. Now, when the king goes out in the garden, have you, ever had, have you ever got so mad you just kind of had to leave the room? You know, and sometimes that's best to do. Just get up, walk away, gain your composure. And he's out in the palace garden, the scripture says, and he's just kind of walking around realizing what's going on. And he's mad. And I think he's mad for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's mad at, at Haman, realizing I trusted this guy. I made him like, you know, my prime minister, my vice president, the second in command. I've given him all kinds of freedom in the kingdom. And he has come up with this evil, wicked plan to kill the Jewish people, which includes now my wife. And he realizes what Haman has done. And then second, I think he's mad at himself. You remember when Haman came to him and asked him for, you know, this request to sign this decree into law that a group of people in the kingdom would be, you know, annihilated? You remember Haman was very sneaky and deceitful and conniving about it? He didn't tell the king who the people were. He just said, there's some people in your kingdom, they're causing problems, and I'll take care of it, king. He's like, okay. And the king foolishly didn't ask enough questions. He just uh, trusted Haman. So he's probably mad at himself now as he realizes that he fell for this conspiracy. And he trusted Haman. And now he realizes, I've been played and I, I've been duped. Because he didn't know that these were the Jewish people. And he didn't ask enough questions. The king, let me just point this note out. Remember what we saw in chapter 6 last week? The king has just the day before found out that Mordecai saved his life. And that Mordecai was also a what, church? 
a Jew. And so the day before, he honored Mordecai. He put him on a horse like a king and paraded him through town, Haman leading the way. And now he finds out that he agreed to a decree to have all the Jews killed. I mean, how's that going to make him look? I mean, he is, he is really in a difficult spot here. Proverbs 16, 14 says this, As messengers of death is the king's wrath. I mean, the king had the power just like that. Snap his fingers, say the word. He could have anyone killed. I mean, they didn't have to go through a trial. They didn't have to go through any judicial system. I mean, he just said the word and boom. Off with your head, hang them, whatever, you know, he decided. And Haman realizes, I have, I have ticked off the wrong person. I'm in big trouble here. The king is really upset because now he is, I've had to play my cards and he knows that I have fooled him and I've duped him and I have deceived him. So it's no wonder here in verse 7 that as the king leaves to go in the garden in his wrath, what happens back in the, in the banquet room? Haman is begging for his life to Queen Esther because he knows how much trouble he is in. You know, and I want to say again, he, he probably did not realize, you know, until now that Esther was a Jew and she would be included in this decree to have all of them killed. One Jewish commentator said this, the arrogant bully in this story, as usual in the face of disaster, is now the whining coward. And he's begging for his life. And what a paradox we see in the story of, of where we've been in these seven chapters. I mean, Haman had been furious because a, a Jewish man wouldn't bow down to him. And now Haman was on his knees before a Jewish woman and he's begging for his life. Amazing how everything has turned around. So we've seen the queen's request, the king's response, and now let's look at the joker's reward. The Joker obviously being Haman, our villain in the story. We pick it up in verse 8 through 10. This is one of the shorter chapters in our study. When the king returned, after he kind of tried to gain his composure and tried to figure out what to do about this and what had been revealed. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman, now watch this, had fallen across the couch where Esther was, probably begging for his life. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who had spoke good on the king's behalf, saved his life, is standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said, say it, church, hang him on it. <laughs> How convenient. Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Wow! What a story. What a turn of events. In verse 8, this, the king finds, he comes in and he finds Haman conveniently laying across the lap of Esther, probably begging for his life. But the king is so upset with him, he's like, huh? he's assaulting the queen. That's a capital crime. It's like, this is easy. And so he's like, arrest him right, right there. Now you notice here in the scriptures in verse 8 and 9, the king did not ask for anyone's advice. We've seen that at other times in the story where he brings advisors in. What should we do about Vashti? What should we do you know, about Mordecai? What should we do about these people? He does not ask for advice from anyone. What should we do with this wicked Haman now that his cards have been played and we, we realize who he really is and what he's planned? He doesn't ask advice from anybody. You see that? But he gets it anyway. He gets it from a guy named Harbona in verse 9. And in verse 9, Harbona says, Hey, uh, by the way, king, uh, over here are some gallows 50 cubits high that Haman made for uh, Mordecai. You know, the guy that saved your life. And he's, he kind of points them out there. And isn't this hilarious? Because it's just convenient that he can go, 
oh, that's a good idea. Let's go hang him on that. You know, I'm sure the king's like, well, that all worked out well. <laughs> How convenient. But Hobona's like, you know, I'm just, just, just saying, king, you know, there's some gallows right over here. And the king's like, great. And it all just falls right into place. How convenient these things have worked out. Proverbs 11.8, we looked at this last week. It says, the righteous is delivered from trouble. The righteous means, righteous is a, is a big Bible word that means right with God. And you know, in this scripture, that would be, uh, in this story, Mordecai was right with God. Esther was trying to be right with God. Haman was not right with God. The Bible says righteous is de- the righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. And so the very gallows that were built to hang Mordecai the Jew on, now the wicked, evil adversary Haman is hanged on himself. I think this also lets us know in this story how much everybody hated Haman. I mean, Harbona is like the first to speak up. Oh, by the way, there's gallows over there. You know, it's like, this is our opportunity to get rid of this guy. You know, every time he comes down the street, everybody's got to bow down to him and everybody's got to praise him. And, you know, they did that because of his position and they feared for their life. I mean, you saw what was going to happen to Mordecai who wouldn't bow down to him. But, you know, I don't think anybody, this lets us know, nobody really respected Haman. Nobody really liked Haman. Nobody really cared for Haman. And at first opportunity to get rid of him, they did. You know what this reminds me of? Y'all won't be surprised by this, those of y'all that know me. The Wizard of Oz. Y'all remember in the Wizard of Oz when the Wicked Witch of the West at the end of the story, you know, uh, the, the fire is going and she takes the pale Dorothy and she throws it on the Wicked Witch and she melts. And remember that whole story, all the monkeys and all those people were uh, all seemed to be on her side, but just as soon as she melted, they're all like, oh, hail Dorothy, you know. And finally we got rid of the Wicked Witch and they were happy about it. And I believe the same is true in this story. People are happy to get rid of this wicked Haman. And notice in verse 10, it says, Once he was hanged, the king's wrath subsided. Justice was done for Haman because of this. His wrath subsided. I'm sure at this point, Esther was relieved. Mordecai was relieved because, I mean, he's been nothing but trouble with these two. The Jewish people, for a moment, probably felt some relief because they knew this was the guy that signed the decree to have them annihilated in a year. And the king was relieved. This is a good part of the story where the bad guy gets what he is due. But it's not the end of the story. However, there is still a major issue because the decree to kill the Jews was to occur in about nine more months. It was put into Persian law. And remember, I've told you several times in this story. Once something was put into Persian law, the law of the Perds or the, the, the uh, Persians, leads of the Persians, it could not be changed by anybody, including the king. Once they agreed to something and put it in law, nobody could change it. So that law is still in effect, even though the evil Haman that put it into law was dead, the law was still in effect that the Jews would have to be killed in one year. So we still have an issue. And the question is, how would Esther and Mordecai and the king solve this problem? What am I going to tell you? Come back next week and you'll see how God is bigger than laws. And you'll watch this play out. You say, wow, that was a quick message today. We can close up and go home. Watch the games coming on soon. We're not done yet. That's the story. That's the history. That's the doctrinal. But we always want to make sure we get to the practical. 
We look at the historical, the doctrinal, and the practical here at the Orchard Church. And I want to close with today's applications that we can glean from what we've seen take place in this story. I want to give you two things in your notes, what we learned from today. First one is the bad news. There's bad news and there's good news. First, I'm going to give you the bad news. Sometimes I'll come home, my wife say, well, I'll say, how'd your day go? Oh, it went okay. I got some bad news and some good news. Which do you want first? I always ask for the bad news first so that I can end with the good news. <laughs> I can at least end on a good note, you know. And so I'm going to give you bad news and then some good news. Here's the bad news. You know what we learned from this lesson? We reap what we sow. If you've ever heard that before, raise your hand. Say Yes. How many of y'all believe that? Say yes. How many have experienced that? Say yes. Don't point to your neighbor. The bad news is we reap what we have sown. Galatians 6, 7 is the definitive verse on this, although there are many in the scriptures. It says this, do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Don't be duped. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also, what church? Reap. For he who sows to his flesh... That means sin, the things that are in disobedience to God. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap what? Corruption. If you sow sin or sow to the flesh, doing things apart from God, there's only one result. You reap the harvest, the Bible says, is corruption. This is an unchangeable truth. I mean, if you plant apple seeds, guess what kind of trees are going to grow? Apple trees. If you plant orange seeds, you're going to get orange trees. I mean, this is, this is an unchangeable principle spiritually and in nature. And God tries to teach us this. Haman, in this story, what have we seen? He has planted evil. He has sown evil from chapters 1 through 7 to now. He sowed anger against Mordecai, wanted him killed. And now in chapter 7, he reaps anger from the king. He sowed a plan to kill Mordecai and all the Jewish people. And now what is he reaping? Death to himself being hung on the very gallows that he prepared for someone else. He is reaping what he sowed. Proverbs 26, 27 says this, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone will have it rolled back on him. Job 4, 8 says it this way, Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity, that's another word in the Bible for sin, and sow trouble will reap what? The same. We reap what we sow. Proverbs 22, 8 says, He who sows iniquity or sin will reap sorrow, difficulty, trouble, Hard times. This is the unchanging principle of reaping and sowing as illustrated throughout the Bible. Not just in this story, but many other stories. Let me remind you of a few Bible stories where we see this principle to carry itself out. Remember Pharaoh, the evil, wicked Pharaoh? Remember he wanted to have all of the Jewish boys drowned? Killed by drowning them to try to get rid of the Jewish race? You know how he ended up dying? He was drowned in the Red Sea with his army. He reaped what he sowed. You remember Daniel? Daniel was a godly man and, and they made a decree that you couldn't pray to God and he, he prayed and stayed faithful to God anyway. And so there was these men that, that you know, was a conspiracy against Daniel. They, they informed the king. They said, hey, let's throw Daniel in the lion's den. So these servants took Daniel. They threw him in the lion's den and God protected him all night and the lions didn't eat him. The king found out about their evil plan and he took the very same servants that threw Daniel in the lion's den and they took those servants and they threw them in the lion's den except that time the lions were hungry. <laughs> And they chewed them up. And it came back around and they reaped what they had sown. Remember Joseph was sold into slavery by his very own brothers? 
That's what they did to him. But many years later, those same brothers came to Egypt begging for mercy and to be servants because they had no food and they had to come before Gesu, their brother Joseph. They reaped what they sowed. And Haman here had prepared gallows to kill Mordecai, but now he's hung on the very same gallows. He reaped what he had sown. We cannot escape the principle of reaping and sowing. Pharaoh couldn't. The servants that threw Daniel in the lion's den couldn't. Joseph's brothers couldn't. Haman couldn't. And guess what, church? Neither can we. This is serious stuff. I mean, I got to tell you, as I was studying this this week, it really convicted me. What am I sowing? What am I sowing? What What will I reap from what I have sown? Let me be real, real, uh, just straightforward with you guys this morning from my heart to help, I hope, all of us, and I include myself. We cannot live a life apart from God and this book and expect that things are going to just go great. We just can't. We can't just do things our way. We can't do our, our marriage and our family our way apart from God's ways. We can't do our finances our way apart from God's way. We can't just make choices and decisions and all of those things and expect everything is just going to turn out great if we've done it apart from God and His Word. It just doesn't work that way because we reap what we have sown over and over and I see a lot of times I talk to people, I counsel people, and they, they wonder, you know, why is my life so difficult? And you begin to talk to them and ask questions, and you find out that they're living a life apart from God. They're, they're not consulting God. They're not praying. They're not reading the Bible. They're, or if they are, they're not applying what they've read. You know, the Bible says that we're blessed if we're doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. And we have to plant those good seeds in our marriage, with our kids, with our finances. It amazes me how many people try to do their finances on their own, their way, apart from God. Do you know there are over 1,400 scriptures in the Bible about money and finances? I think God has something to say about that. And when you follow those principles, things seem to go better. Does it mean you're going to be rich? No. But it means that you're going to be blessed. It means you're going to be a good steward. I believe God's going to watch over you. You know, I, I see sometimes people, you know, they wonder why God's not blessing their life, but they're living completely apart and separate from God, and they're just simply reaping what they've sown. You know, you can't go to work every day, show up late for work, don't do a good job while you're there, moan and complain and be a gospel, and then wondering why, why don't I get a promotion? Why don't I get a raise? You see, we reap what we've sown. I see a lot of times people will make decisions about life, And they'll never consult God, they'll never consult the Word, and they'll never consult other believers that could help them. You know, the Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counsel. That we should seek wise counsel in our decisions. And I see people many times make decisions apart from God, apart from any wise counsel, and then they wonder why everything is falling apart. Why everything has gone bad. Can can I lovingly say something that is kind of strong? I heard one person say, sure. Everybody else like, please don't. This is going to hurt. I'm preparing you. The punch is coming. I get sick and tired of people blaming God for their stupidity. Can I just, can I just lay that out there? And, and I say that to myself too. Because there's times that I've been stupid. There's times that I've made decisions. And I didn't consult God. And I thought, I, I got this one, God. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm okay, but I'll let you know if I need you. And every time I have ever made a decision apart from God, 
I've regretted it. And so have you. We reap what we've sown. Now listen, let me say this. Because some of you may feel really convicted right now about your lifestyle and where you've been and what you've done and things like that. And, and you go, you know, I'm reaping what I've sown. Let's not forget we do have a God that loves us, who cares for us more than we can imagine. And He wants to forgive us. He wants to show His grace and His mercy in our lives. And 1 John 1, 9 is still in the Bible and is still true. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of how much unrighteousness? Aren't you thankful for that verse? So don't get me wrong. God, we can come to Him and we can repent and we can make things right and He wants to forgive us and love us. But it doesn't, listen, listen. It doesn't always change the consequences. You know, we've taught that to our children. You know, when they do something and they say they're sorry, we say we're glad, thank you, but there's still consequences. There's still consequences. Yeah, I, I like to say it this way. If a, if a guy goes out to the bar and he gets totally wasted, he gets in his car and he gets in a car accident and he's totally drunk and he loses his arm in the car accident, he goes to God and says, God, will you forgive me? God will forgive him. God loves him. But he's a one-armed driver. It's just the facts. And let me ask you this very serious question to everyone and to myself this morning. What are we planting today that we might regret when the harvest comes tomorrow. And there will be a harvest. The bad news is we reap what we sow. If you agree, say yes. We need to think about that. Now let's hear the good news. Okay, let's get off that. Here's the good news. The bad news is, say it church, we reap what we sow. Here's the good news. We reap what we sow. (laughs) Everybody say that. We reap what we sow. That's good news. You know, I, I, get, I get tired of a lot of times when pastors preach on reaping and sowing, they only preach on the negative. Only the bad news. You know, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that because you reap what you sow. And that's true. And they never get to the positive of this verse that we also reap what we sow when we plant the right things. Listen to this verse again and let me read the second half of it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But, don't you love in the Bible when there's a but? Here's the good news. But he who sows to the Spirit, that's doing the right things that God leads us to do, will of the Spirit reap what? Everlasting life. Spiritual blessings. God's blessings on their life. And let us not grow weary in while doing good. Keep doing it. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That is good news for everyone who is trying to, re- to sow good things, to follow the Spirit's leading, to follow the Word of God, to consult God in their decisions. That is great news. That there are positive benefits and blessings. That's what the Bible says. That we, the same is true on the, on the good part. That we reap what we sow when we do the right things. And we please God. And the things He would cause us. We see it in this story. Esther and Mordecai trusted God and they went all in with their faith. And they didn't lose heart. Even though they could have lost their lives. They trusted God and they planted good seeds. If you agree, say yes. We've seen it throughout this story. I mean, Esther was willing to risk her life to go before the king and plead for her people, God's people. And she planted that and she trusted God for the harvest. 
Let me remind you, you know, I, I know a lot of you, you've read the end of the story, you know the end of the story, you've studied this before, you've read ahead because you can't stand away till next week, but it'll still be good. Esther didn't know the end of the story like we do. She, she didn't have the book of Esther. This was written about her. She just had the step-by-step, moment-by-moment of God's leading her life and an opportunity to sow what God wanted her to do in faith. But in the end, the harvest was great for Esther and for God's people. Esther sowed good with her faith and she reaped a great reward in the end. You see, God rewards our faith and our good works for Him. He rewards that. We reap what we sow Good, just like we reap what we sow when it's bad. Hebrews 11.6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a, what does it say, church? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I don't know about y'all, but I want to be on the rewarding side of God's blessings. Anybody else willing on that? Huh? Come on. Just 10, 12 of you? I, if you're not raising your hand, you don't understand how he can reward you. I want to be on the rewarding end. But to be on the rewarding end of God's blessings, I have to plant the right seeds. I have to be led by the Spirit and not the flesh. I have to be led by the Word of God, not my thoughts and ideas. I have to be led by wise, uh, biblical, um, Christian counsel that, that knows God and knows His, his Word. Listen, it is not an accident that God blesses some and not others. It's a principle of reaping, sowing and reaping. It's it's not an accident that God blesses those who follow Him and trust Him. Good marriages are not an accident. They happen with a lot of work and a lot of faith. You know, good kids, good families, solid finances, relationships... Those don't happen by coincidence or accident. Now let me, let me say this. I, I'm not trying to preach some prosperity gospel up here. Because the Bible also says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus sometimes suffer what? Persecution. And so this doesn't mean, okay, if I do everything right, my life is going to be perfect. I read about a lot of people in the Bible that did a whole lot more right than I did and their life wasn't perfect. Paul, he was persecuted everywhere he went. Lost his life for his faith. So we're, we're not talking about name it and claim it and you know if you do everything right then everything's going to be perfect in your, in your Christian life. Because here's why. Sometimes, actually most of the time, the greatest blessings of God in our life are things that money can't buy and people can't see. Things like peace, joy, love, faith. That's the things that God, only God can do on the inside of our life even when circumstances around us may be falling apart. Some of the most blessed people I know, you'd look at their life and you'd go, boy, they they don't seem to have much. I mean, it was such a blessing when we went to Haiti and we got to meet some of the believers there. I mean, people that we would look at and go, oh, their life is so difficult, their life is so rough. God has not blessed them at all. And they're happier than a lot of Christian Americans that I know. So it goes beyond just material things. Don't, don't, Don't think that it's just that. But the seeds that we plant will produce a spiritual harvest in your life and family. Now let me, let me just close real quickly, being really practical. And you say, okay, what are some of the seeds that I should be planting as a Christian? 
What should, I be, what should I be sowing so that I can reap God's blessings on my life? Well, let me tell you the first one. It's easy. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, start there. And that's the greatest blessing you'll ever receive. It's called eternal life. That's where it begins. And I know many of you have made that decision. If you're here today and you haven't, I hope you will before you leave. We'll give you an opportunity to do so. But let me give you some other ones. And, and the, you guys know these. You know these. As I say them, it's like, no, duh. You can get up here and teach these. But are you doing them? Are you, are you doing them? Here's another one. You want to sow a good seed in your life? Pray. Pray. Talk to God. Consult Him. In the good and the bad. Read your Bible. Be in the Word of God. Not just on Sunday, but each day of the week so He can speak to you and He can guide you and He can direct you. Say, well, where do I start? A great place, I think, to start is the book of Proverbs. You want to make wise decisions, man, you, you can get a master's degree in making wise decisions if you study the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. There's 31 days, the most in a month. So there's one chapter for every day. It's a great place to start. Be in God's Word. Serve. Serve God. He left you here after He saved you to serve and bring other people to Christ. Do what you're doing today. God, man, the place is packed out today. This is awesome. Be in church. You know, be faithful. Have your family in church. Make it a priority in your not life. Not just when it's convenient and if there's nothing else going on and Broncos aren't playing at 11 and all those kind of things. Now we're getting real too personal. But you know why? Because there's a benefit to being in God's house. Worshiping God in His Word with God's people. Don't you feel better when you go to church? It helps you. It energizes you for the week. Be in church. Do what we talked about today. Be in a small group. Get in a small group so that you can connect with other believers. Our church is to the size now with two services and seven, eight hundred people a week. There's no way you're going to get really connected in, in, in meaningful relationships in a room this size. That's why we have small group. It's, it's, it's the relate, reach, relate, reproduce. That's our process here at the Orchard Church. Get in a small group so you can have 10, 15 other people you can get to know. Listen, don't come to the Orchard Church for a while and then say, well, that church wasn't for me because I didn't really get to know anybody and nobody was friendly if you didn't get in a small group. That's an excuse. We've given everybody every opportunity. And that's where you'll get close to people. And people will pray for you. And people will love you. And people will care about you. I love it. Sometimes I go up to visit somebody in the hospital and their small group's all already been there. I love that. Get in a small group because God knows you need those relationships. And you need people that care about you and that you care about. And you can serve together in your small group. They're always trying to do something to serve. Be a part of discipleship. That's our reproduce. Allow someone to, if you're a man, another man to sit with you once a, a week for about an hour, hour and a half and help walk you through the Word of God. And grab, Listen, if you'll give six to nine months of your life to discipleship, your life will never be the same again. I promise you that. I promise you that. And then go on and disciple somebody else. There's nothing like seeing somebody else spiritually grow and know you've had a part in that. And that's what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples. And he didn't just give that command to pastors. He gave it to all believers. Be a part of that. That's a good seed to plant. You know, there's a lot of these things. Tithe. I know we don't talk about that a lot here at the Orchard, but it's a biblical principle. If you want God to bless your finances, follow biblical principles and, and tithe. Tithe means 10%. And God will bless you for that. If you haven't been baptized, 
Do the first thing that God asks you to do once you're saved. Be baptized. We're going to have a baptism again on Easter Sunday right here on this stage. How many of y'all were here last year for Easter? 94 people were baptized on this stage. It was one of the most incredible services we've ever had. We're going to do it again this year. We're going to do it again this year. Get baptized. Become a member of the orchard. It's the difference between dating somebody and marrying somebody. Make a commitment. If this is your church and this is where you want to worship and you know this is where God wants you to be, plant that seed. Become a part of a church. If not this church, then find a church. Have a church home. Have a church family. And here's another seed that's great to plant. Share your faith. Be a witness. The Bible tells us over and over as Christians to share our faith and be a witness. Jesus said, and you shall be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're, we're to, to share our faith. And, and we're doing something really cool. Um, our assistant pastor, Barry, had done this at another church. And he brought this to our church. And we've been waiting for a good opportunity to roll this out. And today's a good one. Um, there are these cards. We've got about 2,500 of these printed. They're in the back on the tables as you leave. And it's just a little card. And we can put that on the screen. This is what it looks like. It says, uh, show, on one side, showing God's love. And on the other side, no strings attached. And then all it has is just in real small letters is, is our website if someone is interested in knowing more about God. And you guys pick these up and when you go and somebody waits on you and does a good job, leave a good tip and leave one of these. If you don't leave a good tip, please do not leave one of these. That will have the reverse effect. That would be the bad news of we reap what we sow, okay? Showing God's love, no strings attached. You're going through the line, you know, at Starbucks, and get, get the person's coffee behind you and say, would you give this card to them? You know, you're, you know it snows, and, and, and your neighbor, you know, that maybe uh, is working late and can't shovel their driveway. Maybe it's a single mom, or maybe it's an elderly person. You go over, you shovel their driveway, put this on their door. You can be creative with this. Have fun with this. But this is a simple little way to share your faith. Showing God's love, no strings attached. You like these? I think these are really cool. Grab a stack of these. Use these as opportunities. Invite people to church. Let me quote, close with a couple of scriptures. Proverbs 58, 11 says this, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. There's a reward for those who are right with God. Proverbs eleven eighteen says, But he who sows righteousness, being right with God, will have a, say it church, sure reward. The bad news is we reap what we sow. The good news is we reap what we sow. Listen, I believe God wants to bless us. He's our Heavenly Father. And, and, and this talk, is talked about in, in, in the Gospels. Just as we as fathers want to do good things for our children, I love doing nice things for my kids. It says our Heavenly Father wants to do even more for us. I believe God wants to bless us. But we need to answer this question. Am I blessable? Am I blessable? God wants to bless me, but I have to sow the right seeds to reap the right blessings. I was talking to a man, and I'll close with this story, I promise. I was talking to a man a year ago in our church, him and his wife. They own a business. They've been very successful in their business. They have, have about 75 to 100 employees underneath them. And last year at this time, at the end of the year, they were going through a really hard time with their company. And they were starting to lose a lot of their employees. 
This couple had just started getting involved in our church. They both signed up for, they both were, began to get in a small group. They both were discipled individually by someone else. Him with a man, her with another lady. They began to really grow in their faith. Their whole life, their marriage was turning around. Their relationship with their kids was turning around. A lot of things in their life they were doing, they, they felt convicted about. They, they stopped doing. And people in their business began to see this and, and they began to be convicted about their kind of their Christian lifestyle. And they weren't in the, in the face of anybody. People just saw, you know, that their life was just different. You know, the Bible says we're a new creature in Christ. And so some of their employees began to leave because they wanted to go to companies that were a little more party-oriented. And so they started losing people and, and, and they started losing money. And I told them, I said, listen, you hang in there. You be faithful. God's just cleaning house. And he's putting the right people in your company so he can really bless it. About a month ago, a year later, he came to me and he goes, you would not believe what's going on in our company. God has brought us the most incredible people. He said, he's bringing us, these, he's bringing us Christians. And I mean, we're not looking for Christians, but he's, we find out that they're Christians. Their lifestyles are different. Their values are different. You know, our company is on the upswing. You know, we've had a great year. We got some of the best employees we've ever had. And he's just kind of telling me about this. And I don't think he had completely connected the dots. And I said to him, you remember our conversation a year ago? He's like, yeah. And I said, you're reaping what you sowed. And I said, God is now blessing you because of it. And he's like, you're absolutely right. And God can do the same for you. Here's the question. What kind of seeds are you planting? What kind of seeds are you planting? Because we reap what we sow. Would you bow your heads this morning with your heads bowed?